Welcome back to another week of Cunningham's Law Review, where our goal is to listen to the top artists and songs of the last 100 years, starting in 1920 and working our way forward. Every Monday, we review what we hear and share the history of popular music with you as we do. I'm Richie, and you're listening to Side A, episode 1923-5, which, believe it or not, is our final episode for 1923. We'll be saying goodbye to the year with three familiar names in Al Jolson, Paul Whiteman, and Eddie Cantor. Today, we're saying goodbye to 1923, with three artists who have been featured in every year of our reviews, and that's Al Jolson, Eddie Cantor, and Paul Whiteman. Without a doubt, these musicians contributed greatly to the popular music of the time, and as we've covered them previously, we'll just refresh your memory as to who they are, starting with Al Jolson. We last heard from Jolson in our 1922-4 episode, but like the other two artists here, he's been in every year of episodes so far. Al Jolson is without a doubt the biggest star of the early 20s, and he has had more songs on Cunningham's than any other artist, with 16 up to now. Though Marion Harris and Paul Whiteman are barely behind him with 15 and 13 songs respectively. Most other artists were not nearly as prolifically successful and don't have more than single digits. One thing that we've always brought up when we talked about Al Jolson is that he performed fairly often in blackface. We've received some feedback on our YouTube channel that I thought was worth thinking about, and so while it's my belief that blackface is most often performed with at best inconsiderate intent and with at worst malicious racism, as you think about this issue for yourself, it's important to have a bit of context. Jolson was not a perfect man by any stretch, but he was generous in some parts of his life, especially in his performances for the USO during World War II and the Korean War. There are many instances of Jolson performing in blackface where he's documenting the practice in the past, but many of these document times such as minstrel shows where blackface was common. While in my opinion there is no great excuse for performing in blackface, when you look into Al Jolson consider the context of the films and the performances that he's giving, and the statements he makes while in blackface because that's also very important as well. Does he affect an accent to seem as if he can't pronounce words correctly due to lack of education? Does he pretend to be stupid? Is he intelligent and eloquent? What are the characters he is playing trying to represent? I think you'll find that there are evidences of both motivations in different performances from Jolson. There's no doubt that Jolson would influence the stage and screen for long after his career peak in the 20s, but it's unfortunate for his legacy and the many people negatively impacted that he would give some of his most remembered performances in blackface. And we'll get more into that with a really clear-cut example in today's Side B. In our previous reviews of Jolson's performances, he often sang popular songs with comedic influence or songs meant to be performed on a vaudeville or Broadway stage. Despite being one of the biggest selling artists of each of the years that we've reviewed, Jolson's work continues to be reviewed poorly due to both a lack of innovation and a lack of authenticity in recorded music, earning a 12 average in 1922. Our next musician, Eddie Cantor, was for the most part a less serious singer who focused his talents on entertaining the audience with his interactions and expressive face. And that has hurt him in the past because, in a record, there's no interaction or expressive face. Cantor performed in New York vaudeville acts with Ziegfeld's Follies for 10 years at the height of the Follies' popularity, and while he performed in blackface at times, it was not his most well-known act. His 1920 performances earned him a 13.7 average, narrowly losing a head-to-head battle with Frank Crummett in our 1920-4 episode. Worse yet, in 1921, he averaged a 12 with lackluster performances ill-suited for his vocal range. Similarly, he failed to carry his solo offering in 1922's episodes, earning a very low score of 10. 
While Cancer's star is falling, Whiteman's star has been on the rise over the same period, with more or less steadily increasing scores and standout highlights muddled by low-effort offerings. Paul Whiteman, known as the King of Jazz, could be said to have started the big band movement that would evolve over the next 20 years into the height of the 40s swing movement. His average score of 16 for our 1920 review was one of the higher average totals for performers with multiple songs, but in 21 he improved to an average of 16.75, where he really started to show his stuff in Song of India. Whiteman was a classically trained orchestra leader prior to his jazz career, and his performances and song choices often reflect that, and can be very well composed and arranged in his hands. Whiteman was one of the first mainstream performers to popularize jazz as we know it today, but likely he benefited from the lack of competition from black composers, who were not able to find work easily in the entertainment industry due to racism, but who were performing inventive jazz tunes that were imitated by other bands. Whiteman in particular is more successful at adapting the sound and styles of King Oliver, W.C. Handy, and Jelly Roll Morton, and synthesizes it into his big band style to better than average effect. So let's stop talking about the music and let's start listening. For those of you listening to the podcast through Spotify, there's a version of the episode available to you which includes all of the music as a part of the podcast, so you'll only have to press play once and everything including the music will play on its own. The episodes with built-in music are limited to Spotify, so if you're listening to this episode through a different service or on YouTube and still want to listen along to the music, a playlist of what we're listening to today is on Spotify and is called Cunningham's Law Review 1923-5. You don't need a paid account to access that playlist. You can also find a link to this episode on the Cunningham's Law Review subreddit at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review. We want to know what you think about our reviews and the music we're hearing, so make sure to join us on the subreddit, leave us an anchor voicemail, or follow us on Twitter at Cunning Review. That's all for Side A of episode 1923-5. We'll see you for the reviews after the songs on Side B. Thanks for joining us back on Cunningham's Law Review episode 1923-5, where we're listening to songs from some familiar names, Al Jolson, Eddie Cantor, and Paul Whiteman. This is the B-side of the podcast, where we review each of the songs in today's music and talk more about the impact that these songs had. If you'd like to join the conversation, the Cunningham's Law subreddit will have a dedicated post for this episode at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review, and we'd love to hear from you through an anchor voicemail or on Twitter at Cunning Review. I'm Richie, your host, and I hope you enjoyed the music, or at least heard something new. Let's take our first look of the day at Al Jolson's Lost a Wonderful Girl. As a reminder, our copyrighted MICA system features five categories of one to five points each. Mastery, innovation, catchiness, authenticity, and artistic statement. The lowest score is a five because some music is better than none, and the top score possible for a song is 25. So our first song of the day from Al Jolson generally follows his same formula of singing expressive but hammy and melodramatic songs about either current, lost, or dreamed of love. In this song, the love is lost, or at least in the process of being lost, and Jolson is speaking to a classifieds editor about placing an ad in the paper to let people know that he's lost her and he's looking for her. That's at least a clever device, but the song falls victim to Jolson sticking with his successful style and isn't able to offer much to challenge the singer's voice. And to be clear, Jolson does have a special voice. In 1927's film The Jazz Singer, his version of the Col Nidre is probably my favorite piece of his, and it shows how when he takes his art form more seriously, how effectively he can convey emotion. 
If you're wondering why so many people love Al Jolson, I'd suggest checking that out. It's on YouTube and it's pretty easy to find. For this song, however, Mastery is a 3, Innovation a 2, Catchiness a 3, Authenticity a 3, and Artistic Statement as well, for a total score of 14 out of 25. One thing that's interesting to note is near the end of the song, Jolson mentions a Valentino as a fashion icon and celebrity. Of course, he's not referring to Valentino Garavani, who wouldn't be born until 1932, but instead to Rudolph Valentino, famed silent film actor who died in 1926, only a few years after the song was recorded. If you've ever seen American Horror Story where they're in the Hotel Cortez, that is the same Rudolph Valentino that Al Jolson is referring to in this song. Okay, so admittedly Stella breaks Jolson's formula for generating topics, but not by much. In this one, Jolson is bothered not by his current love, but the current love of his friend. They're just annoying to him, and he sings about it in his standard form. Stella gets the same score as Lost a Wonderful Girl for pretty much the same reasons. In Who Cares, it's interesting because it almost sounds as if it was meant to be a Marion Harris song where there's more focus on the rhythm of the lyrics interacting with the music. But in general, this is a song about lovelessness and the ache it causes your heart, juxtaposed against the fact that nobody else feels it or really cares that much. It's a lament that's a bit more complex than Jolson's usual material, but not by a tremendous amount, and so it again receives a 14 out of 25. Jolson's last song of the day is Morning Will Come, and this is actually a song where Jolson is credited with writing it, and he's even featured on the sheet music by name. This year marks Jolson's height of popularity, and it was pretty common with really big artists back in the sheet music days to have them listed as co-writers, because it helped sell copies of the sheet music. So while the writing and arrangement of the song is vastly more interesting than Jolson's usual work, we can't exclusively credit him for that without going back in time to see if he made real contributions. I will say that the artistic expression in this song rises far above Jolson's normal material and features multiple thematic explorations of night and day contrasting sadness and happiness in an effort to convey hope in spite of adversity. That's also supported by the second verse, which even goes so far as to say that the darkness is what gives the day meaning, and adversity likewise acts upon happiness. While that's not a hyper-profound statement, it is better than the standard material of the day. Mastery, innovation, catchiness, and authenticity are all threes. However, Jolson hits a rare four with his effective artistic statement featuring imagery and message. That being said, unfortunately, the musical that this song was written for, Bombo, while extraordinarily successful on Broadway and moving on to a national tour, featured Jolson playing a black character as a slave working for Christopher Columbus. He was in blackface the whole time, of course. By this time, Broadway had already broken the color barrier with 21's Shuffle Along, but instead of having a black actor in the lead role, Jolson played the role himself in blackface. Now, to be fair, the whole play is essentially a Jolson vehicle that allowed him to perform as many songs as possible but the writing choice is hard to defend otherwise. With that, we end our reviews of Jolson's songs for 1923 and see a career-high average for the musician with 14.5. Moving on to Paul Whiteman, his first song, Last Night on the Back Porch, goes full original Dixieland Jazz Band, or King Oliver's Jazz Band, in this song, which is raucous without apology when compared to the more tame offerings from Jolson. The vocals on this version are from the American Quartet, And the lyrics are pretty raunchy for the time where the singer essentially confesses to having sex with a girl on the back porch last night. The solos in the final portion of the song are the highlight of the piece overall, but they do fit in very well with the rest of the band. 
You can fully imagine this being played at the speakeasy of the time to a full house of excited revelers and watching them flood the floor for this highly popular song. Mastery is a four, innovation and catchiness a three, and artistic statement and authenticity match with threes as well. Whiteman didn't invent this style or write the song, but his band does a formidable job covering it, and the song is interesting with the way he does it, earning a total score of 16. Now, in a huge departure from Last Night on the Back Porch, which sounded hyper-modern and attempted to maintain the driving styles of jazz at the time, an Orange Grove in California has a band that's firmly rooted in the past and only adds some jazzy musical flourishes to what was otherwise a standard Irving Berlin song about missing California and its orange groves. Without the lyrics, there's little artistic statement, since the music doesn't attempt to push the boundaries much, but if you look up the lyrics otherwise, it's literally about missing California and its orange groves, and the lyrics don't make statements that much either. So this seems like another Whiteman attempt to capitalize on a popular song of the time by recording a version of it as a well-known band that would have easy sales. Micah's score for this song is a 15 with threes across the board. Moving on to our final artist of the day, Eddie Cantor, we have No No Nora. And it seems like Eddie Cantor went to singing school this year as he is hitting notes that he hasn't been able to previously and his projection and range seem to have both improved. This song is a comedic one about a woman with an ugly boyfriend who is unduly worried about him cheating, but really she just wants to hear her boyfriend tell her how much he loves her and so accuses him of these things that she knows he didn't do. The song is average but doesn't innovate and receives a fairly standard comedic score of 13, which is always hurt by lack of authenticity. In He Loves It, we have another comedic song, this time about a man who doesn't get treated well by his wife. He suffers abuse, he has her spend all his money, and she even cheats on him. The man doesn't seem to care though and is happy, so that's it. That's pretty much the whole song. He Loves It doesn't do anything better than No No Nora, but it does abandon completely realism. It makes the comedy hard to believe. So He Loves It earns a Micah score of 12, with category scores of 3, 2, 3, 2, 2. Now, in the last episode, we talked about how popular the song Yes, We Have No Bananas was. It was more than just popular. It was a cultural phenomenon. And Eddie Cantor recorded this song, I've Got the Yes, We Have No Bananas Blues, to tell everyone how sick of the song he was. Cantor goes off on the song the whole time and even says how he'd like to find the composer and let him know how annoyed he is to hear Yes, We Have No Bananas everywhere he goes. It's not a brilliant song by any stretch, but it is a really interesting time capsule bringing us proof of how pervasive the original song was and how it was inescapable. The song borrows quite a bit musically from the St. Louis blues, interestingly enough, since Cantor probably didn't have a credible blues writer otherwise. But overall, it's an interesting song more than an important one, and it receives a 14 total score, earning a 3 in both authenticity and artistic statement that put it above Cantor's other offerings. Our last song, Oh Gosh, Oh Gee, Oh Golly, I'm In Love, or whatever it's called, it doesn't matter. It's hard to finish because it's such corny, hokey crap. Mastery is a three, innovation a two, catchiness a two, authenticity a two, and artistic statement a two. The only thing I can say I like from this song is that the guy's name was Aloysius just to make the rhyme of suspicious, and that he referred to the hyperinflation of the German Deutschmark that was going on by this time, saying that he felt more useless than a German mark. That's it. That's the only good things about this song. So total score of 11 for an average of 12.5 for Eddie Cantor in 1923 and the last song of the week. And with that, we can say goodbye to 1923. And next week, I can look forward to one of the most highly rated songs of the show 
as we focus on just one single song that made an immeasurable impact on music. You'll have to tune in to see which one that is, but history buffs can guess. Whether or not you agree with us, we want to know what you think because Cunningham's Law states that the best way to learn something on the internet isn't to ask a question, but to post the wrong answer somewhere. So make sure to find the Cunningham's Law subreddit where we have a dedicated post for this episode at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review. We'd love to hear from you through an Anchor voicemail or on Twitter at Cunning Review. If you leave us an Anchor voicemail that we end up using on the show, we'll review an album of your choice in a special episode, even if it's your own bands. If you like what we're doing here, leave us a review on your favorite podcasting service and follow the podcast everywhere you can. And if you don't like it, definitely don't mention that to anybody. Until next time, I've been your host, Richie, and you've been listening to Cunningham's Law Review. Our theme music is a difficult subject by The Insider, and nobody else works here. <laughs>